The rest of us, the rest of us this morning are going to be in Acts chapter 9. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to join me in Acts 9. And we are going to look at the second greatest event in the book of Acts. The first greatest event in the book of Acts is the giving of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2. And I think the second greatest event in the book of Acts would be the conversion of Paul. I like to call this text a killer conversion. And it's a killer conversion because Paul is a killer. And when a killer gets converted, it's a killer conversion. Killer? Yeah, it's a killer. It's a killer thing. And I was in the mood for a good conversion story. Uh, I love hearing about how people come to know Christ and how God invades their life and spares them of what they deserve. And I thought maybe you would be in the mood for a killer conversion story too, so that we might worship God for being a great and saving God. And so we'll look at Acts 9 this morning. And as we do so, if you'd like an outline, if that helps you to track, uh, we're going to be able to highlight uh, three noteworthy features of this killer conversion story. And I'll preview those for you now. Number one, its unfolding is sovereignly designed. Its unfolding is sovereignly designed. And we see this in verses 1 to 9. And I'll certainly explain that, what I mean by that later. Its unfolding is sovereignly designed. We're going to see that in the first nine verses. Number two, another noteworthy feature of this killer conversion story would be its unlikely key player. Its unlikely key player. That's in verses 10 to 19. Again, making no sense to you at this point, but that's okay. We'll get to it. And then number three, another key feature we're going to highlight this morning would be its unmistakable transforming power. Its unmistakable transforming power. That is the unmistakable transforming power of conversion. And we see that in verses 19 to 31. And we're going to end this morning's service on a high note. And that's because having looked at this and hopefully saturated our minds with the power of God to sovereignly save people based solely and completely on the work of Christ, we'll be reminded that it is all the work of Christ that it's been done and finalized already, and we'll be reminded of that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We will eat and we will drink uh, symbols, eating the bread and drinking the wine, being reminded that Jesus' work is complete, and we are to remember that His work is complete, and that's the very basis for any and all conversions. And so I'm really looking forward to that, and trust you will be also. Ready? Set? Go. Go. I do this when I'm excited, so that means I'm excited. So uh, you can do it too if you want. If you're excited, if not, go back to sleep. Um, here we go. Let's look at this first feature, which would be its unfolding uh, sovereign design. And we see this with Paul. Even before we look at the first verse, we probably need to remember who Paul is. Because when it says in verse nine or verse 1, but Saul, well, Luke, as, he, as he's writing these acts... He's assuming we've read chapter 7 and chapter 8 and we've learned that Saul isn't a choir boy. And Saul isn't exactly uh, front of the class as far as a good candidate. He's not in the seeker class. He's not that at all. As a matter of fact, I guess before we look at verse 1, chapter 7 verse 58 says, and this is going to underscore the sovereignty of conversion because God has to do that. He has to convert this guy or he would never be converted. Verse 58 of chapter 7, then they cast him, that would be Stephen, this is Stephen's martyrdom, the first martyr of the church. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. 
So they execute Stephen and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. They're seeking his approval and they have it. Chapter 8 then in verse 1 tells us something similar. And Saul approved of his, that is Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And this is coming from Saul. He may not have actually uh, lifted a finger when it comes to killing people, but most certainly he was behind it. Chapter 8, verse 3, But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So he's not just going to go after the leaders and go after the men. It's men and women just to show us how intense and how zealous a religion, religious person he is against Jesus. And so with that in mind, I think then we're ready to read, but Saul in verse 1 of chapter 9, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, that would be followers of the Lord, not just the twelve, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. He goes to the high priest because the high priest is going to have Roman backing. The high priest is the guy with the authority. And so he's going to go there so he can have even Rome on his side and not just the Jews on his side. Then verse 2 says, So that if he found any belonging to the way, an old shorthand way of describing Christians, men or women, again, intensity of his savagery, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He wants them extradited. He wants them to go and face official trial for blasphemy. Speaking lies about God, saying that Jesus is God's son. He is going after them and he's doing so intensely. Again, I think it's important that we remember as we think about the sovereign work of God in conversion. And what I mean by that is that God does it. When I say sovereign, I, I, I mean he's in charge, he's in control, he's the power behind it. Think of a king. Well, if he's the almighty sovereign, he not only does whatever he wants to do, he can do whatever he wants to do. And that's how salvation works, and we'll talk more about that. But against the dark black backdrop of Saul's shady past, and he's going to get converted, we're going to be reminded of the sovereignty of God in salvation. Once again, Paul is not the likely candidate. People are going to be shocked that he's the guy. He's again not seeking after Jesus. He's not what some have called a pre-Christian. The hostility is brewing and it's running deep. Think with me, if you would, about a, a key figure that is historically famous for being against those who believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Well, back in the first century, Saul was just such a guy. He was as anti-Christ as you get. Which is going to remind us of what he would say later in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God... He knows all about that. He can write about that and help us understand the theology behind it because he understands full well that it wasn't because he was seeking after God. It's because God invades his life. 
Then look at verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, roughly 150 miles from Jerusalem now, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Acts 22, verse 6 tells us this is midday. So how about that? Midday in the Middle East, the sun is blazing hot. You don't want to be outside of your tour bus for five minutes in the Middle East in the summer in midday. And yet, midday, sun is brightly shining, and yet there's a greater light than that because there's something supernatural happening. It's going to get everybody's attention. And so we're meant to see that, that, that intensity of all of this. Verse 4, And falling down to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and just as a fun little heartwarming footnote, Saul had never met Jesus before. What do you mean persecuting me? Well, the heartwarming nature of this is Jesus so identifies with his people, with his church, with believers, that when they're persecuted, when they're hurting and hurt, he's with them, which is just great to even think about. But Saul saw, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5, and he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, I know we haven't just read through the book of Acts or studied through the book of Acts recently anyway, but, but just think about what, what the contrast is here. Stephen was just martyred. And, and, and Stephen looks up and sees Jesus in heaven, welcoming him because he's dying. And now the next thing on the agenda <laughs> is Saul, who was behind the execution of Stephen, seeing Jesus. Now, I, I hope that, that the Lord Jesus allowed Stephen to witness this thing happening. I mean, this is talk about a brain trip, right? The, 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 the ravaging one, the venomous one who's, who's trying to snuff out anything that has to do with Jesus as the Christ. Saul, the last person to see Jesus was killed by him. And now he's getting converted. It's really quite, quite fascinating, quite awesome in all the best senses. And then we continue on. In verse 6, But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. I just have to, maybe I hope this is from self-control, but maybe I'm losing my self-control here. Just please notice what he doesn't say. I mean, as we're watching the hunter become the hunted, just, just watch what verse 6 doesn't say. Jesus is in command mode. This is what you're going to do, and I'm going to tell you what you're going to do, right? Well, what we don't see happening is any kind of flavor for, uh, of something like this. And at this point in time, Jesus asked Saul if he would like to pray and ask him into his heart. Giving him the option of saying, I don't think I'm ready to make a decision today. Okay? You don't get any feel of that. You don't get any sense of that. You don't get any sense of... And at this point, Jesus, with a high feminine voice, said, I'm knocking on the door of your heart and wondering if you would let me in because I'm Jesus and gentlemen knock first. Don't remove that and sound bite it and make me say something else. 
Which, by the way, is, it was, is a misuse of Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus is knocking on the door of a church. But anyway, if Jesus, if Jesus is knocking on anything here, he's knocking the door down with his foot like this and saying, all right, Paul, here's what you're going to do. And I'm stressing it and emphasizing it, not because Jesus is a mean guy or a bad guy or anything like that, or that he's not a gentleman, but you've got to know this is emphasizing the sovereign work of Jesus in salvation. And he comes and he shows up and he saves people. Remember, the Apostle Paul will go on to tell us again, I'm going to reference it again in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, that before this he was dead in trespasses and sins. Jesus could have knocked all day long and nobody would have answered. Jesus is going to save this guy and then tell him what to do. And so I want to take note of that in my own understanding of how the gospel works and how salvation works. The sovereign work of conversion here is is quite staggering and, and quite amazing. And then the response of the entourage is kind of interesting that Luke records this. Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And who can even imagine the kind of stuff that's going on in this guy's head? He was educated by Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee which would have meant his dad was a Pharisee. I mean, he was somebody when it comes to religious knowledge, clout, weight. We just saw that the the people, when they want to go after Christians, they go to him for approval. He's a big wig. He's a player. And here he doesn't talk or eat or can't see for three days. Just imagine what's going on in this guy's, guy's mind. What kind of flashbacks is he having? Some pretty wild ones, I think. I like what Warren Wiersbe said about this. He said, The Hebrew of Hebrews would become apostle to the Gentiles. Remember, the Jews called Gentiles dogs, spiritually unclean. The persecutor would become a preacher. And the legalistic Pharisee would be the great proclaimer of the grace of God radical, bringing true meaning to the word conversion. And we're seeing that happen with him. It's no surprise to me that Paul would say this in Galatians 1. Listen to this, Galatians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. That's who I am. I was called by Jesus. And I don't say anything I say based upon my own authority. You should have been there that day. Totally changed. Major conversion. But let's move on. Let's move on to a second noteworthy feature, and that's its unlikely key player in verses 10 to 19. And the unlikely key player used by Jesus in Saul's conversion experience, we could at least say, would be a guy named Ananias. Not Ananias of Acts Five, the famous or infamous Ananias, but a different guy that you don't even know about. I mean, if we were sitting around playing Bible Trivial Pursuit, which seems oxymoronic, if that's even a word, 
Um, let's just make the Bible more trivial. Anyway, uh, it's probably a good exercise. I'm just bitter because I lose because I don't know enough. But anyway, <laughs> maybe it's a good memory tool, but I stink at it. Um, if we were sitting around and somebody said, who is Ananias in the Bible? Most of us would say, if we knew, we would say, oh, Acts 5, Ananias married to Sapphira, right? The whole, there was a slaying in the spirit service and uh, true slaying in the spirit. And God killed them both because they lied to the Holy Spirit. I would never go, oh, yeah, Ananias, he's the one that uh, God used in, in Paul's conversion. I'm just making the point that he's just an unlikely guy. He's an unlikely guy. And I think later when we're all done and we talk about some application along the way, it's pretty helpful to think about how God uses unlikely people. Which encourages me. Hopefully it will encourage you as well. And so let's read about this guy Ananias who is the, the better of the Ananiases, I guess. Um, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Pretty different from Saul's. Uh, and the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. Then verse 12 says, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. That's kind of interesting in light of how biblical metaphors are sometimes. And how that same phrase, to lay hands on someone, is used metaphorically sometimes. Anyway, Paul laid hands on people before, and it wasn't to uh, give them their sight back. <laughs> it was to kill them. Anyway, so that he might regain his sight, verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have fear from, from many, I, or I've heard, yeah, I've had, I have fear. I'm just reading into it because I know what's coming. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here, that's in Damascus, he has authority from the chief priests. Again, read into that. That's with Roman backing to bind all who call on your name. So word on the street is he is bad and this is a problem and we would never want to do this, Lord. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Because I asked him if he was willing to do this for me and if he wanted to do this plan and I even like the way he says it. He is a chosen instrument of mine because he cho I chose him to do this, right? He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I even like the, the breadth of that, right? Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So it's really quite all-inclusive. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Read role reversal there. Once again, just to pause for a second and, and, and consider with me what Paul would write, like in Philippians. We looked at it a couple, two, three weeks ago. At the end of chapter 1, he tells the Philippian believers that it's been granted to you. He uses the word for grace. It's been freely granted to you to believe. So faith is a gift. And also to suffer for his sake. That's a gift too. So in Philippians, Paul is teaching the theology that he received and learned here from Jesus. He's the chosen one. And he's also going to suffer for the sake of the gospel. I just appreciate the fact that he preaches what he's 
experienced. He preaches what he's already practiced. And now the objections are answered and the plan is spelled out in verse 17. Look with me if you would. So Ananias departed and entered the house, which takes a lot of faith, by the way. He's trusting God at that point in time, right? Departed and entered the house. I mean, it's not like he can look at his little scripture memory cards and go, be anxious for nothing. (laughs) Right? Because Paul hasn't written that yet. (laughs) But he would. And certainly he could find other verses that would tell him he needs to trust God even in the face of danger. And laying his hands on him, another real interesting literal statement, but I'm thinking of how that's used metaphorically in other places and how Paul would have done that metaphorically when hurting people. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, <coughs> you know, my, my notes, I just wrote, wow. <laughs> Brother Saul? I mean, on, on, the first, on the first level, you don't say that because he's a, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's not just going to go up and go, hey man, how's it going? He's somebody. But not only that, now, now he's, he's, he's treating me as an equal, but on a spiritual level. Brother? Wow. This guy does have a lot of faith. And Paul really has been changed. Brother Saul. Let's keep going. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, so we want to see that from Luke's writing and describing this, that it's a supernatural occurrence. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. All of this God did, yes. But isn't it noteworthy that God didn't do this through Peter the Apostle, or John, the one that Jesus loved extraordinarily. God did this absolutely, and God did this through some Ananias. Who's the wrong Ananias? Not even the famous one or the infamous one. I like to see that. It encourages me. He is described as godly in chapter 22, verse 12. He's just a godly guy, a godly, ordinary guy that is going to get his name confused with somebody that God killed. So maybe he's less than ordinary. He has a bad reputation and he shouldn't have one. Well, maybe not, but you get my point. I'd like to even stop and contemplate a little bit how this guy got converted, which is total speculation, which is really dangerous. So let's not be dangerous, but let's at least make the, I think, fair, you tell me, fair observation that the person who evangelized this guy, Ananias, had no clue at all when he did so, that he would be the one used by the Lord Jesus Christ so instrumentally in seeing Saul converted. I don't want to make more out of this than we should make out of it. But I do want to make the observation that this guy's a nobody. And it's a big deal, the way God used him. That warms my heart and encourages me, and I'm hoping it encourages you too. We might say more about that at the end. Let's move on now to the third noteworthy feature and final one. 
It's unmistakable transformation. This conversion story tells us something about the unmistakable transformation that happens. And while not a lot of detail is given, it's meant to show us that something really changed. The latter part of verse 19 says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed. Notice, Luke is using this word purposefully. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. This is a conversion that actually converted. He goes from being the bad guy to having his mouth shut to being the one who is preaching even at great risk to his own well-being, right? We're going to see that. So we see that this, there's an unmistakable transformation that happens and, and Luke even likes to accentuate it by saying immediately in verse 20. Maybe more about that in a while. Verse 21 then says, And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc? He ravaged in, this, in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name. Great synonym for a Christian, by the way. They call upon the name, which emphasizes that it's all of grace and nothing we do. They call upon the name. And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? This is staggering to the mind. But this is giving God glory because we know all about this guy. Isn't he the same one? And now, he's shamelessly, fearlessly preaching for the very one he was against. Read Transformation. I love this. And then verse 22 says, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded or, or, or baffled the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. The Greek word that he uses there that's translated in most of our English Bibles as proving means to join together or to draw conclusions. That's pretty easy to figure out, isn't it? Paul is proving to them the legitimacy of Jesus as the Christ. He's well trained and well versed in his Bible. He knows the Bible well. And here he is engaging them and he's engaging them and he's proving the point. He's bringing the conclusion together. As we like to say around here sometimes, he's connecting the dots. He's showing them that this Jesus is truly the one. What he's saying here fits nicely with Luke 24, as in all that stuff that Paul had been learning all this time. Actually had a hero, and it wasn't Paul. And the hero is none other than Jesus. And he's proving the point to them that Jesus legitimately is the one. I love it. Verse 23 says, When many days had passed... The Jews plotted to kill him. Another variation in the hunter being hunted. Verse 24, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. Verse 25, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. 
like 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And now in Jerusalem, look at verse 26. I just would like to try to figure out what this looked like. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. Hi, guys, I'm a Christian. <laughs> yeah, right, okay. We'll meet you over there at 6 p.m. and We'll be over here, you know. I mean, this is bad news. Keep reading in verse 26. And they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. You know, newsflash... Coming in on my Twitter feed, Saul, converted, becomes a Christian. Unfollow is what I would do on my phone. I'm not following that guy on Twitter anymore. I don't know what they're talking about. That is so unlikely. That is never going to happen. That's impossible. I don't know where your sources get their sources, but they're crazy. And so, can't believe it. But, verse 27 says, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Proof of conversion, proof of genuineness. He faces hostility in what happens. He walks away showing himself to be merely a professor of faith. No, hostility comes to Paul and he preaches boldly is what he does. Verse 28 then says, And he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Those would be the Greek-speaking Jews. By the way, those would be the ones who stoned Stephen at Paul's approval. And now he's speaking boldly toward them and disputing them. This guy got converted, genuinely speaking. End of 29 says, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this in verse 30, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Someone made this observation. I thought it was rather helpful. It takes little imagination to picture the scene at home when this brilliant young rabbi, the pride of Gamaliel, returns home a preacher of the despised Jesus of Nazareth, whose disciples he had so relentlessly persecuted before, what will father, mother, or sister think of him now? I like that question, that inquiry. It's going to be tough going for him. We can almost hear Jesus saying to his original inner circle, Hatred by mother and father, sister, brother. Point being, your very closest relationships are in jeopardy here because of your allegiance and your relationship to me. But again, it's a conversion story where there actually is a conversion. It's more than a profession. And Paul's a great illustration of that. So when he goes on to talk about those kinds of things, to help us sort some of those things out, he's speaking from first-hand experience. Which is helpful. Verse 31 ends by saying, So the church, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, had peace and was being built up. 
Where does that peace come from? I think the rest of the verse tells us. I really, really like this. Hope you do too. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And points to be made there are pretty obvious, don't you think? Naturally, you need to be afraid of everybody because of this. And any sense of security that we did have, kind of being a little bit secretive as Christians, is gone because Paul. Oh, in one sense, you might even be thinking if you're a Christian, oh no, you know, God, you should have converted someone other than him. We're really glad, Lord, because this is a trophy of your grace, but man, the heat just really got turned up on us because the guy just won't stop preaching. And he's really influential. And this is going to be a big hit to the dark side. This is stirring up a hornet's nest. Huge potential for fear of man. But it says they're enjoying it in the fear of the Lord. Okay, Lord, you're the sovereign of your church and you sovereignly save whoever you want. It was Paul. So what they're doing here is, is, is good. Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And I guess when things are this heated up, ultimately, you're going to try to get some comfort from one another because that's biblical, but you better be getting comforting, comfort from the Holy Spirit because that's going to be the real stuff you're really going to need. And the Lord builds His church. In some ways, some people could have argued this is not the best thing for the church. The Lord's doing it, so... I guess we'll walk in the fear of the Lord and be comforted in the Holy Spirit. And and then it multiplied. And I just have to step back and say, now that is a killer conversion story. Hope you think so too. Maybe some points of application that are more generic that might help you. Uh, I think they've helped me. Um, And before we get to them, I have four of them. But before we get to them, I I guess I would want to come clean and acknowledge and, and remind you, this is not a normal story, right? So I'm not going to try to say, and this is how it always is. Everyone Jesus ever saves becomes an apostle. Uh, This is pretty unique. It's definitely unique. Let's acknowledge that, but let's also acknowledge that there are things about this conversion story that aren't unique. And Paul will even draw upon his own conversion story to actually make the point that this is how people get converted in other places. And so I just wrote down four things that I thought were helpful. Maybe they might be helpful to you as well. This one who was formerly a blasphemer, as he says in 1 Timothy 1.13, a persecutor, a violent aggressor, shown mercy. Shown mercy. I wrote down this. Number one, God saves sinners. God saves sinners. And then in parenthesis I wrote, even really bad ones which is nonsense if you know anything about the Bible or Christian theology, but you get the point. A sinner is a bad one to begin with, right? And the Bible tells us that we've all sinned, we've all rebelled against God, but obviously there are those that really stand out and seem to need a, need a merit a reward, uh, an award. Ravaging, tearing apart the church, and God saves sinners. Even the quote-unquote really bad ones. Paul will use that later to argue from the worser to the betterer. <laughs> from the greater to the lesser, but I'm trying to make the point. And basically, if God can save me, He can save anybody. God saves sinners. Remember that. Please remember that. 
As you're wanting to learn about conversion, God converts bad people. And oh, by the way, we're all sinners. And if God can save the Apostle Paul in a certain sense, he can save anybody. And more than likely, you're like me. You have people on your list that might not even be on your list, but at least in your mind, who you've kind of given up on. And you think they're so far from the kingdom, there's no way. Well, it's ultimately up to God and His sovereign purposes. We rest in that. But please don't think that person is somehow beyond reach because that wouldn't fit with what we're learning here. I've literally had someone say to me before, I thought you were unsavable. And here's where I like to say, you know what? It's true, right? We're all unsavable because we're dead in trespasses and sins. God saved Paul. That motivates me in my personal witness, wanting to open my mouth, wanting to tell people about Christ. Hope you feel the motivation as well. Number two, God saves by sovereign design. God saves by sovereign design. We've already pretty much seen that enough, probably. Paul wasn't seeking after Jesus. He was seeking to kill all who followed Jesus. And God sovereignly intervenes. Your number's up, buddy. And now I'm going to tell you what to do. <laughs> you got to love it. Number three, God uses seemingly insignificant people to do significant things. He uses seemingly insignificant people to do significant things. And we saw that already with Ananias. That encourages me as well. So not only does he save sinners, he uses sinners. And he uses sinners who aren't famous. That's encouraging. I mean... Most of us in this room aren't famous. I mean, most of us don't have a lot of fame. And if you're famous in Omaha, Nebraska, wow, you're something. Good job. <laughs> Our guest speaker last weekend, my dear friend Byron, uh, overheard Molly say something about going around in the city. He goes, city? Um, <laughs> Okay, so maybe some of us have some influence somewhere. and Oh, really? Generally, no. Open your mouth and speak truth about Jesus. God uses people who do that. Uh, we do learn from the book of Acts that he's a godly man, Ananias. So don't be afraid to evangelize people that don't seem to be able to be reached. And don't be afraid because you don't have a degree and letters behind your name to open your mouth. That one really, really encourages me. Just as a little uh, uh, fall on my sword moment here, um, illustration maybe illustrates both of these. When I, when I was, and maybe to encourage some of you teachers uh, who teach our children and maybe get frustrated when you have some of my vipers in your room or, or something like that, and you just think, I don't really know what the use of it is. When I was in middle school and probably into high school, I eventually stopped going, but when I was in, in junior high, my, I kid you not, my goal, my friend and I named Todd, not Todd Swift, another demented friend, um, <laughs> another fellow sinner. Uh, our goal every week was to get our teacher to cry. And we usually were pretty good at it. Check in, go to Sunday school, and we could make this lady cry almost every time. Um, I've talked to her since I've been converted, and it's sweet to talk to her. 
But as you labor and you see nothing, or you see the opposite, you see hostility, just be encouraged. God uses sinful people. He uses means. He uses insignificant people to save really big, fat sinners. This is a great time to just remember that, I think, from Ananias. And finally, number four, conversion converts. Conversion converts. I think I've already let that slip out of my mouth a couple times. Think about that for a second. Conversion converts. Point being, a genuine conversion where somebody truly believes in Jesus leads to change. There is a conversion, which again is different than profession. So when the heat came, Paul didn't check out and say, don't think so. He was genuinely converted and it showed itself. So when Paul talks about these kind of things in other letters, he knew what he was talking about. It even reminds me of the four soils in the parable there that Jesus speaks of. You know, and so, for some, there's, there's a profession and the intensity comes and there's persecution and it shows itself to not really be a conversion. It shows itself to be a profession. But we should know, we should know and learn from passages like this and passages like Matthew 13, but since we're on this one, that when somebody's converted, there's a conversion. There's a, there's a turning, which is what conversion is. And it would just do us well. It would make the church healthier. It would better equip you in your evangelism and your thinking about your own life. That while the Apostle Paul didn't instantly, based upon profession of faith, become glorified, as he would teach us in Romans chapter 8, but as a convert, he got converted. Makes sense? Hope it makes sense. Well, let's, let, let's pray and get ready for the Lord's Supper. Hopefully all of this has been getting us ready. Father, thank you for our time, just a great time of reading history. We're grateful for this kind of history because it's been inscripturated. We're grateful for this kind of history because it's redemptive history. And we're grateful for the way the Holy Spirit worked in the Apostle Paul's life, the way you invaded his life, and the way you equipped him to teach us many things. We're grateful for the fact that you have brought us here today to learn, to learn a little bit more about how salvation works. And now as we have opportunity to understand even a little bit more, to be reminded a little bit more about what brought all of this about, may it be a rich time for us.